Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up playing for the TIFF Viking, and he's on the senior national team with Norway, and he's currently playing for Mount Royal, who's nationally ranked. Please welcome to the show, Samson Olsen. Samson, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's a big pleasure. So you, you came up on the Sean Sky episode where I was kind of giving him credit for his recruiting and all this stuff going on. And I know uh, MRU's had a few international cats, but just to hear your story where I uh, grew up in Norway, but I think your your dad is dual or, or was at least uh, grow, grew up in Canada. So maybe just set the scene for us because everybody knows you're playing at MRU, but uh, you're kind of a Canadian at heart, right? Yeah, uh, I definitely am Canadian at heart. I, I, am, I am a dual citizen. My dad is 100% Canadian. My mom is 100% Norwegian. I grew up and was born in Norway, so I've lived there my whole life. But what we did every summer was we traveled to Canada and spend the majority of July with my grandparents and my dad's side of the family in Edmonton. And we also have some family down in Calgary. So uh, that's how I've ha- found my love for uh, Canada. So through through those summers spending in Canada. Man, that's awesome. And um, it, it feels like mostly Winter Olympics, but it feels like every Olympics, uh, articles start floating around about the Norway sports system. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating. So did you grow up in an era where uh, encouraged to be a multi-sport athlete? I think it's famous that like you don't keep score in soccer and some other sports, but just making it accessible and that like every kid should have an opportunity to play sport. Does that sound familiar or does the article really kind of hype it up and take it over the top? That's actually very, very spot on <laughs> what you're saying there. Uh, up until I was, I think, 13, maybe even 14, uh, I played soccer and barely at age 12, 13, they're allowed to, you know, uh, put the best team on the field. There's a very big emphasis on sport is for everyone. Sport is all inclusive. Uh, and it really has its benefits, I think. And that was the same for volleyball. But, you know, once I started getting older, I, I really started getting that competitive spirit in me. Um, but it's definitely something I see different from here in Canada where I hear that uh, kids are going to hockey tryouts at age 10 and you have tryouts for volleyball, girls 12. So that's definitely different from Norway because it, they do everything they can to keep it all accessible and it's very much subsidized by the government as well. It does not cost nearly as much to play sports in Norway uh, as in Canada. And even if you are playing an expensive sport like hockey in Norway or like skiing, they'll do everything they can to try to uh, help you get equipment or stuff like that they have different types of social programs for that uh if if needed but uh there's a big i was i was fortunate enough that i did play uh, several sports growing up i played soccer i played volleyball i played a tad bit of uh, track and field a bit of hockey but that was to be honest very rare it's not common to see kids playing different sports it's usually all in for soccer all in for handball all in for skiing quite a young age but I guess as a society, we're pretty adverse in the sense of uh, wilderness and outdoor life. Well, it's cool to hear that there's an emphasis on like not not selecting kids at a young age, but making it inclusive. But uh, I'm curious with you being such a competitive guy and such a love for sport. Did it ever annoy you as a younger kid being like, why can't we just like stack a team or why can't we play against all the best players that like it, it was an inclusive model and there was a spot for everybody? I guess what worked out well for me and what does work out for other kids that are very competitive at a young age is that you can play years up and that's very easy and it's very common. Uh, So for soccer, I usually played for the same age and the same guys that I grew up with. But for volleyball, I would play U17, U19 at age like 14, 15, uh, stuff like that. So I was very fortunate to be able to uh, play at, you know, arguably like my, my level, even though I wasn't at their same age, I was allowed from a very early age to play with guys that are much older than me. That's what my brother did as well. And it's very common to see from kids that come from volleyball families like myself. And when you look back, whether it was uh, soccer or volleyball or anything else that you were playing, one thing that in North America we kind of get a knock at is like the kids compete so much, but they don't actually like practice or train that much. I'm wondering with Norway putting such an emphasis on like the, the long-term development and just like sport for life. Did you notice that you guys would train and practice a little bit more? Or were you playing games every week or going to tournaments every weekend? Like what was the balance there? I'd say we probably have the same amount of games as here in Canada, but it's too for soccer. Soccer, there was always games once a week. Volleyball, you'd have like game weekends. Kind of like similar to volleyball, Alberta, how they host game weekends. That's what we did in Norway as well. But I'd say up until... I was 15, 16, even 14, 13. Like there's, there's a bigger emphasis on just having fun, having fun with the sport. You don't see competitive parents and 
competitive athletes nearly as much as what you do here in Canada. So it's not as common to like wake up at 60, 6 a.m. when they're 15 years old and go to a morning practice uh, in Norway as it is in Canada. It seemed, seemed to me like the, the program that Brock Davidek is running at in Edmonton, where he has kids coming in for a setter academy uh, before, like in early high school, some kids, some kids even junior high, that's not as common in Norway. You definitely have high-performance high schools, but it, it might even be frowned upon sometimes, like going away from that joyful sport and too much focus on the competitiveness, especially at early age is what, what I've experienced in Norway. Nice, nice. And when you knew that volleyball was going to be your next level, like you mentioned, you were playing up. When you pursue that, is that through school sports? Is that through club sports? Are you kind of already around like a, a men's club team? Like, a, at what age did you start taking it seriously? And what was kind of the pathway to to do that in Norway? In Norway, it's all club. We don't have school sport. They're not a, they're not existing at all. So uh, I started playing volleyball when I was in grade five, and that was directly through a club system. Uh, it's, as I said, it's very accessible. It doesn't cost you a lot. Uh, but if you're playing a sport in Norway, you're playing club and you're playing outside of school hours. Um, I think I actually had my debut for the men's men's team in Norway when I was 15. So I was very fortunate enough to get in on a serve, had a few sets. Uh, so from 15 to 18, 19, I was part of the, uh, men's team in Norway. But what is different in Europe is that you have the divisions. So even though I had my debut for the elite team, I was mostly playing for the first division team, which is the league underneath the elite series in Norway. So that's where I started uh, really going serious with the sport at age 15, 16, um, was training with the first division team, which is like all the young guys that want to get up to the elite team or older guys that might not have the level to go uh, up to the elite team yet. And was there ever any thought or, or even pressure to go to one of those specialized sports schools? Because uh, I think the Volley Vikings do a great job with content and they have a great video on the school there. But uh, obviously they get credit for being beach guys. But even Henrik played NCAA, like he was a good indoor player as well. So was there ever any pressure for you to leave home or you felt like the, the club system you were growing up through was going to get you to the stage you wanted to be at? Yeah, so that's that's interesting you bring that up because there are different approaches you can take when you're in Norway. So. Uh, I chose the route of staying at home, staying in my uh, hometown Bergen and playing for Viking. And that worked really well because I actually had a high performance high school in Norway uh, that was in my uh, city, which was for not only volleyball players, but volleyball players, soccer players, uh, handball players. We'd all be in one uh, same class. We'd have morning practices separately with sports. And then I would be able to train with the Viking elite team in the evenings. So people who don't have that kind of a system, the club system that does has a good elite team, uh, for them it's very beneficial to go to a top four in Norway, like uh, Anders and Hendrik and Christian Sørum did. Uh, but you see people who come from way up north in Tromsø, some kids in Oslo, and especially Bergen, uh, they tend to stay home uh, if they have a good system going there with their men's team, which is more similar to the to what you see in countries like Poland, Italy, who stay home with their respective uh, senior, t- senior team programs and, uh, not as common to go to these high performance schools. And the one that nowhere is like in the middle of nowhere. So you're going to a specific place and then you're training morning and evening kind of thing. So we get the same outcome I feel, but for me, it was very beneficial and kind of like a no brainer because I got to train with the men's team compared to, you know, training with kids, even though they're very good kids and the same age as and did that always feel normal? Like, was there ever a spot where you're maybe a, a little timid or hesitant to speak up? Because, uh, again, not, not to compare the ones better or worse, it's just honestly different. And I'm fascinated by this. So thank you for answering all my questions so far. But like in Canada, all the way up through the club system, you're playing with cats your same age. Or if you're playing up, it's like one age difference where it, it sounds like from the time you were 15 or 16, you had a chance to play with men. So was that ever challenging or different to kind of walk into somebody, uh, a gym and see somebody 10 years your senior and, and have to compete in battle or even the challenge? of your position being a setter even like kind of tell them what to do tactically it was for me it was a huge privilege being able to train with these men because my dad used to coach a lot of these men uh before so i kind of like grew up in the gym watching these guys and then suddenly when i turned 15 16 i was (laughs) i was allowed to be on the court training with them even playing some games with them so in some sense it was super intimidating because you know they'd let me know if i was screwing up or if i was doing something different so learning wise, I learned super quick and was able to take, take very big steps. And I would argue 
bigger steps than if I was only training with guys my own age that were, let's say, similar level. Uh, so yeah, I was able to take super big steps, but uh, it definitely was intimidating at times. And when it came time to make a decision, if you were going to maybe go the school route and play post-secondary or go the professional route and join a club, like, well, was that a pretty tough decision for you? Or did you know that you always wanted to kind of maybe look at Canada or the U.S. and go through the school system and still be playing at a high level? So part of the reason I found out about the post-secondary system here in Canada is that we would go to Edmonton uh, in the summers. And my dad is friends with Terry Downlake and Brock Davidek. So I kind of knew of that post-secondary system. Uh, that was run at the U of A. I had seen their, some of the practices, what that was all about. I followed the league. I'm, I'm quite interested in volleyball. So I followed the league uh, growing up in high school. And for me, I wasn't, you know, I'm a six foot setter. I'm not like the most uh, stud athlete you see. So I wasn't, I don't think I was good enough to take a big enough step out in the pro life directly in Europe to countries like Belgium, Germany, Finland. So for me, it was really good that uh, I could go the route through post-secondary, getting an education and still uh, a level up in uh, volleyball. Um, so, yeah. And did you go through a recruiter? Did you rely on your dad, who's a coach and has a, has a sports background? Or did you find yourself that you were emailing coaches and kind of having these conversations when you started uh, kind of deciding which schools you're going to apply to and who was interested in having you on the roster? Yeah, I did not choose to go with a recruiter. Uh, what I found out is that it's really hard for internationals to get recruited uh, by Canadian schools because they have uh, a lot. There's a lot of good athletes here in Canada, a lot of good talent. You see that on the men's national team, right? These guys are coming from Canada, the Canadian university school system. Uh, so for a school to pick up an international, while they have so many good athletes here, isn't always that easy. So yeah, basically I sent out emails to many many schools here in canada both college and university and just tried to see what i could get who's interested who's not and uh yeah i kind of go from there but i didn't get uh too much help from my dad there's a big emphasis on uh personal independence in norway so they like that uh people take you know responsibility for your own development kind of thing that's something that's been knocked into my brain a lot in the high high performance high school that i went to by my dad and it's something that's uh, helped me grow a lot as an athlete, kind of like taking responsibility for your own development. So yeah, reaching out to coaches, just sending emails, sending highlights, sending game videos and see, see who wants me. Nice. And when you started to get some responses or narrow it down on your end, was it going to be important for you to be in Alberta because that's where your family was and that was what you were most familiar with? Or were you honestly looking maybe Atlantic, Canada, Ontario, uh, maybe further West, maybe in the, uh, like in Manitoba area, like where were you kind of looking to start? I had the impression from watching the league that Canada West was so strong and it was uh, very cool for me to see how deep the league was. So I had a big ambition of wanting to go to Canada West. Uh, it's been a great, uh, great, uh, uh, great thing that I landed at MRU because it is in Calgary and is very close to my family. But I was uh, just looking at where do I have the best chances to progress as an athlete in volleyball uh, what does the team look like? What does the coaching staff look like? Uh, and that's what made me choose MRU. I was also looking at uh, schools out east, even some in Quebec, uh, some colleges. Yeah, but uh, fortunately, I landed in Calgary, and it's close to close to where our family is, so that worked out very well. And did you do a, a site visit? Did you meet Co uh, Coach Sky or any of the players before you went? Like, were you a full time student by the time you walked in that gym for the first time? I had only had virtual meetings with Sean uh, prior to coming to MRU. Uh, that was actually the summer, the first summer I played with the Norwegian men's national team. So I wasn't in Canada that summer. So yeah, when I stepped uh, stepped on the court the first day of training camp, that was the first time meeting, meeting all the guys, meeting the whole coaching staff. So I definitely got chucked right into it. And what was your first impression from that training camp? Like, could you tell from the level of your squad that uh, it, it was confirmed Canada West is a, a very competitive league and you were on a very good team? I definitely did. Uh, what stood out to me about Canadian volleyball compared to Norwegian volleyball uh, was that the physicality and like the extreme attacking, blocking there in Canada is very good. What I, I obviously came from playing men's volleyball that summer with the Norwegian national team and with my team back home, Viking, where there are a bunch of older guys, more routine, maybe more emphasis on uh, technical skills. It kind of felt like I was like hopping down to junior volleyball again. But, but then again, the physicality, like there are some extreme 
extreme abilities here in Canada that you don't necessarily see all the time in Norway, which is a fairly, fairly small volleyball, uh, volleyball country. And was there anything that maybe caught you off guard that you don't mind sharing here that not, not a negative on your teammates, but I think thanks to the internet and social media, everybody's catching up a little bit, but you mentioned like how physical and some special athletes were, but uh, I find that we as Canadians don't understand tactics as well as maybe as Europeans do because you guys are watching professional volleyball so much. Was so was there any situation where like guys are wailing on balls where you're kind of like, why didn't you recycle that and I could have reversed the flow or anything like weird? We're kind of like, this is different where you guys just want to hang and bang and you don't really understand like the maybe some intricacies that maybe you understood as playing with men and playing more of maybe of a European style. I actually said this uh, to Sean my first week here at MRU. I said, why are all these guys doing so many dumb mistakes and attacked? And I look back at it now, kind of funny, right? Because, you know, uh, we are a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old guys that are doing a lot of dumb mistakes. And me, probably just as many, right? But coming from playing men's volleyball, I think there is that aspect of being more exposed to the European professional game when I'm in Europe. uh, Because, you know, it's the same time zone. Uh, Me and the boys would chuck on a professional volleyball game sometimes after practice. We'd get together, have some snacks. That was more common than it is here and understandably so, right? Because it happens, you know, uh, 8 a.m. in the morning or in the middle of the night. So it's definitely different. I think what we talk about more in Norway is like different ways of doing stuff and in Europe as well, like different ways of doing stuff because we'll see the French national team do it this way. We'll see the Polish guys do it this way. And then we'll see the Italian guys doing it some totally different way. And it feels like here in Canada, some stuff are more, uh, maybe a bit more set in stone. You have the American Canadian way of volleyball that don't get me wrong, is very good. And it's working, especially for the USA men's national team. And you see Canada even qualified for the Olympics, like a no brainer, uh, which is very cool to see. So there definitely is uh, good volleyball happening here, but I think the tactics and the technique is maybe a bit more set in stone and people or athletes might not argue as much through coaches. I have a feeling that it's a bit more, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but a bit more authoritarian here in Canada. And uh, arguably, you have you have good uh, results to show because the Canada men's national team and the American men's national team are doing very good. So uh, I'd say that, yeah. Do you have any examples you can give me and the listeners just to, to confirm maybe the freedom? So you're a young guy, you're learning how to set where maybe a coach asks you to finish, uh, I don't know, random example, left, right, instead of right, left. Like, do you have the freedom as an athlete to kind of figure out which one's more comfortable than saying, like, this is what the best setters do and this is what you have to do? Like, maybe what are some examples where you you kind of recognize that you were given freedom or you looking back, be like, if I was coaching young kids, I would let them figure this part of the game out on their own? So first of all, my dad's a coach and so I know how coaches has work and I know what they want. So one thing that was very funny, the summer of 2022, I was working with the Norwegian men's national team and the coach, he was very resistant on, you start with your right foot in front of the left foot when you start and you have to finish left, right. And as much as possible, try to jump on off one foot when you set. So I come to MRU, I've been working on these stuff the whole summer and Sean sees me jumping off of one foot. He's like, whoa, whoa, what are we doing here? And I did the left, right, and he's like, I think we should do right, left. So I understand, and I would, too, have my own uh, philosophies on how to do stuff. And it, it's not – in me and Sean have a great dialogue on this as well. There's not necessarily a right or wrong, uh, but it's a good thing to be on the same page of something. Uh, but that's also where uh, those kind of things might be a bit more set in stone here. Uh, but I see, you know, Brazilian setters – will arch their back when they set the middle, but then you see Polish setters, they're neutral all the time. So there are definitely different ways uh, of setting the ball, contact point over your head, in front of your chest, behind your head. Uh, A lot of good setters do it in uh, different ways. But what's very interesting to me and what I would teach my athletes if I became a coach and what Sean is actually very good at teaching me as well is that uh, the consistency never changes. So even though Tanuti maybe has a lower contact point than Mike Christensen, Tanuti always has a low contact point and Christensen always has a high contact point. And the Brazilian setter does the different, like a William Mariona, right? He'll arch his back for a specific purpose. He's not doing it just to have fun or be flashy. There's always a purpose to it. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what I find very interesting. And because you are such a fan of volleyball, when you watch these guys, how do you figure out what works for you and maybe stuff you want to steal and stuff that maybe you're like, 
you know what, that's really cool and I'll be a fan of them, but I just can't do what they do. Like somebody my size, I, I, I love watching Mika Christensen, but he, he's a unicorn compared to me. I'm never going to be able to like set the ball he does, right? So do you ever find yourself like watching certain players and you go, you know, that's cool, but I, I need to accept that that's maybe just not my skill set or, or something that I'm going to accomplish. So I'm not going to go to the gym and try to rep this out. Yeah, it's funny that you say when I was up until I was 16, 17 years old, I had always idolized a Norwegian setter called Kåre Morken. Uh, he was a setter in my club uh, that my dad coached. I grew up watching him in the gym when I came with my dad to practices. He's a six, seven foot setter, the best setter that Norway has ever had. And he had beautiful hands, beautiful wrists. He would set with his wrists, literally. And he would pop his elbows out and flick the set backwards. So when I became 16, 17, I thought, yeah, this is, this is how it's done, right? Because I'd watched him my whole life. He played for the national team. And I just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't understand why... I couldn't push push the ball as far as he could. Or, and I found out that, you know, we don't have the same body composure and I don't have the same flexibility in my wrists and my back uh, as he does. And when I started watching these guys like Tanuti, like uh, Fernando Kraling from Brazil, uh, I found that, okay, they're they're setting, setting other ways than I'm doing and it's still working. They're get, so they're still getting a very good back set, but the, tech, the technical uh, foundation and the technique they used to get the set uh, was more relatable to me, right? As a shorter setter, they're using more power, jumping from the ground instead of this this setter coil. He would often jump early and then set on his way down. And when I was trying, when I would try this stuff, I was like, no chance, right? I have no power. I have six feet, and I got to use all those six feet for what they're worth, right? So. And, and is that a battle you've had your career? Because it is kind of a trend here in Canada where at the youth level, most teams will have a, a smaller skilled setter and then they'll try to experiment a little bit and they'll try to find that 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six cat who can maybe take over a position and coaches walk into a gym and go, oh, like I'd love to have them on our team. But sure enough, whenever I watch provincial championships, it's usually the, the undersized setter who delivers a consistent ball, who's competitive, that they're going to get the reps. So you being a six-foot setter, did you ever have to battle or compete and realize that like, uh, I'm not going to be the six eight setter who gets maybe more attention and in theory is a better blocker or a better server, but man, can you run an offense and, and consistently run the team? Yeah, I've definitely heard that before, right? You got to be taller, but I would say back home in Norway and in Europe in general, my, my feeling is that as long as you deliver the best set, run the best offense, that's all that matters. Uh, coach Hildebrand from Team USA, I saw him on a YouTube video once, and that was kind of cool, right? Because he said, coming from the States, he said, uh, yeah, sure, maybe that 6-5 setter will block a ball, but if you defend a ball, then you're 1-1. It's it's even, right? So it it matters the most how precise you can be with that set, uh, how good you can run that offense. And my dad used to actually travel a bunch to countries like Poland, uh, Italy, and he would um, scout other teams, like professional teams, and uh, uh, Superliga and Plus Liga, and he'd ask coaches, like, what do you guys think about short setters, right? Because, you know, I was his son, he had some short setters in his club, and they said, uh, you know, it's it doesn't really matter too much to us. And that's what I see in Europe as well, right? You have a lot of uh, shorter setters that are just so good technically and they deliver the ball so good. And that is some of the some of the things I was, I was thinking about before I made the move to Canada and the States, because, you know, as I've said, I've followed the NCAA, followed the CIS U uh, Sports League for a while, and I know and I see that there are a lot of tall setters, and there is a big emphasis on taller setters. One of my better friends on the national team, Jakob Tella, uh, was a stud at Hawaii, right? Great, great setter. But he also said that a big part of the reason he was recruited to go to Hawaii was because of his height. His hands weren't as nice in his first year as they were in his fifth year at Hawaii. Uh, so there definitely is that emphasis uh, on taller setters here in Canada and North America. I feel, but uh, for me, it's, you know, motivation. I'm, I'm lucky enough that, uh, Sean believes in me and Sean believes that uh, he has the same kind of philosophy as many coaches in Europe, right? That as long as you deliver the ball, run the best offense, that's the most important thing. And statistically, that's what uh, is correct as well, right? Uh, team in Italy called Trentino in the Superliga, they have one setter that's six one and backup setter is six foot. And they have gone Champions League final two years in a row, and they're currently leading the Italian league by quite a bit. So, uh, to me, that's good enough proof. That's all I need, and I know that it's possible. So, uh, I'll go from there. 
And obviously we, we've mentioned your father who's a coach and you do have a, a sibling who's a high level player as well. So I'm wondering, is it just that you're a baller and you're just really good at volleyball and you probably played in the backyard a bunch, but uh, just looking at your dig stats and your serving stats, you have found a way to contribute where maybe you are an undersized setter, but you're, you're just a great volleyball player. And I'm wondering, is that love of defense because you were hyper aware of like, if I need to beat guys out, I need to have like skills in all areas or are you getting so many digs just because you've played so much volleyball and it's a part of the game you really love? Uh, I think it's twofold. I think both of your statements were correct. Uh, I have had from early on, I had a big emphasis on, okay, I got to be faster to the ball than that tall setter. And I have to dig more balls at him. So that's motiv- motivated me a lot in practice. But I think a big part of the reason uh, that I am fast and that I am able to dig a lot of balls is because I've played so much volleyball. Uh, there's an interview on YouTube uh, with uh, Jenny Gabenikov and they ask him, how did you get so good in reception? And he said, you know, I've passed a lot of balls. <laughs> That's, uh, there's, there's usually no secret recipe. And I've been fortunate enough that I started at a very young age. I started when I was nine, 10 years old. Uh, and I've just touched the ball so much. I love being in the gym. Me and my brother have, have we peppered for hours. We went in the gym, hit balls at each other. I think that definitely has uh, sparked my defensive uh, abilities. Now, hopefully, Coach Sky doesn't mind me asking this and share as much as you can here without getting in trouble. But uh, ripping through some box scores, your your assist totals are super high. Like you popped off for 51 match here. But when you start digging into the box score, maybe some casual fans would be like, well, you have Chris Byam on your team. You must just like throw it up to him. And, and yeah, he gets a fair amount of touches. Like it'd be silly not to give one of your best players that many attempts. But he'll get a chunk of attempts, but then my guy, Jacob and will get a bunch of attempts. Uh, you have Lewis lying on your team. Uh, Jace is getting a lot of touches. Max is getting a lot of touches. Like it looks like you spread the offense as well as anybody does this year. So is that something that maybe you and coach have sat down and talked about? Is that just something you pride yourself on about as a volleyball player is just getting everybody involved because, uh, it, Chris is, is a special player, but it doesn't look like he's going to get like 60 or 70 attempts on your team. It looks like he's going to hit an efficient rate and he's going to get the lion's share, but you're going to spread the ball to everybody. Yeah, I believe in being deceptive as a setter and I believe in being unpredictable. And I think if it gets too predictable, even a guy like Chris Byam in this league uh, won't have an easy job. Right? And part of, my, part of my job as a setter is to give guys easier opportunities. That's why you run the overload, the split overload. Uh, so that's definitely something me and the coaching staff talk a lot about. Uh, I'm in a very, very luxurious spot, uh, meaning that if we're in system, pretty much any guy at set is going to get the kill. Uh, so that's, that's very, I'm a very lucky guy. Uh, but, you know, and I do think it is a good mix, a uh, good mix of the coaching staff. Uh, tell me what to do. Give me good input. Give me good advice. Uh, but I also do believe that if the middle blocker on the other side, if the left side blocker, uh, doesn't know if they should help, don't know if they should commit, uh, release to the outsides, stay on the pipe. I think that, that gives us a perfect position to be able to ex- execute in uh, all five attacking points. And for you, is this something you like to prep with game film and talk to the coaches and have a plan? Or are you really big on like looking through the net and almost having like a feel for the match and feel how things are progressing? I'd say I'm definitely a big film guy. I like look, looking at a lot of video. Uh, that's the way I grew up in my club back home as well. Uh, I feel very confident before a game. If I've uh, watched enough video, it's kind of like taking a test. If I've done done my work, I'm ready to hit that midterm. But uh, if I haven't watched a lot of video and haven't done the prep, then I feel insecure. And uh, I do try to look a lot uh, through the net as well, but that's something I've come to realize that sometimes you're going to be able to look a lot. Other times you might not. And it depends on the past, depends on the situation. Sometimes it's not necessary. It might affect the setting. And it's something that I'm still working on, haven't mastered yet. Like I see guys like Tanuti, Sakita for Japan. They're just so good at it. But they've been working on that for a long time. And even even they look sometimes and don't really um, catch on what they're seeing. And then they just got to make a good set still. So I try to do that, but uh, not put too much emphasis or focus on it. And when you look back growing up as a young man, at what age do you think you started setting the overload? Because just speaking to a couple club coaches, like that's pretty hard for setters to get a feel for. It's hard to kind of let the middle know what's kind of in their zone and what's going to be like just glancing over top of them where uh, I think the spread makes a lot of sense for like simple tactics for younger setters to involve, like send your middle on a 30 and isolate your right side. Like I think that's awesome tactics for a young setter to gather. But this overload you guys are running when did you get comfortable for that? Did you enter MRU with that, that knowledge or is that something you've learned through the Canada West? 
I would say when I was 20, 19 years old in my club Viking, that's when I started using the overload. We used it a lot with the national team. Uh, I couldn't really use it when I was playing in the first division in Norway, which is under the elite series. And in my junior years, I always knew of it because, you know, I watched Tanuti a lot. He does it so much. Uh, but it didn't really work, and especially junior volleyball and even in the first division because, first of all, our offense isn't fast enough. So when I set the outside, it just helps their middle blocker get to the outside. So when I got up on the men's team and played a bunch there, it worked. We had a fast enough offense so that they would pop on the middle and then I'll be able to go on the outside, especially on the national team. We have some huge middles there. And what I found is that me as a smaller setter, uh, it works very well because they can't really see the difference on the trajectory as much as if I compare myself to Grant Hill. Grant Hill has a way higher contact point than myself. And the overload isn't necessarily as good of a weapon for him just because my trajectory is lower. Uh, that's something I've heard Tanuti say as well. But when the trajectory is lower, they don't really see if it's if it's a seven or the over kind of thing. So it's worked very well, especially with big middles like Jace Timmer, Andreas Tokfam on the national team. Uh, yeah, it works well. And similar question, at what age do you feel like you started to grasp uh, the middle pipe? Like when was it fast enough that the the pipe or the back row player coming through was actually fast enough that if you got the, the middle to bite with the front row middle that you actually created a gap or a lane for them to hit through? I would say I started setting a lot of middle and when I played first division uh, in uh, Norway. I, I set a lot of middle in junior as well, but that was so effective just because other people didn't know how to block the middle. Uh, it was so fast, they didn't really know what to expect. Uh, and then when I played first division, we had very good middles on that team. So, you know, I was an easy out. And then on the men's team, especially, that's where I started playing with the pipe as well because uh, they would pop on the middle and the pipe would be open. Same for the national team. And it works very well here in Canada as well. You kind of play cat and mouse with, uh, with your middles, your pipe with their middles. Uh, what are you going to do? Who are you going to send? Which moments? Uh, and yeah, that when it, now when it's fast enough, that's why I'd say in junior volleyball and first division, when it wasn't fast enough, it wasn't as effective. But as long as you keep the speed, know what you're doing, and there's purpose to it, it's very effective. And is that something you can be aware of as a setter? Or do you find like it's a little bit overloaded and maybe you rely on like uh, an assistant coach or even your own middles kind of telling you what the other middle's doing, whether they're like peer read or committing? Like uh, how much information are you either to, to kind of gather and process during matches? I would say both. Uh, every time I set the middle, I try to ask them, hey, did they front on you? Did they take a step? Was it full commit? I usually see if it's a full commit. Um, but we also have a great assistant coach, Travis Banks. He works a lot with uh, me and Grant, us setters. Uh, and he gives me great feedback, especially in timeouts. Like, okay, they're taking they're taking steps toward the middle, but they're not fully fronting or they're full committing. You know, the pipe's wide open. I always try to ask the pipe as well. Uh, hey, what are you guys seeing? Because they have a good view of it. So I always try to get that feedback because they're they're the ones who know the best, right? If the middle has a full guy in front of them, uh, I always try to look as well, but it's a good mix of all three of us, I'd say. And with your position comes a lot of leadership. And I'm wondering, how do you get the middles to feel valued and be demanding on them where even if Lewis is popping off, maybe, maybe he gets 20 attempts a match where like Chris and Jacob are probably going to get 30, 35, 40. Right. So it's just the way the game is that the outsides are always going to get more touches. So how do you keep your middles engaged to keep running routes and trying to draw blocks and open up gaps when maybe they aren't getting the touches the other guys are? There definitely is big kudos to our middles and any, anyone who plays middle because you don't, as you say, you don't get the most volume. Uh, we're very fortunate that we don't have selfish middles or they're not whining about getting sets. They understand the game. Uh, so what I try to do with Lewis, Jace, Cody, our middles is to give them enough volume because first of all, it is super effective. You see that on the international stage, you see that in Canada West, it is the most effective run. So I'd be stupid to not run it enough, but especially try to run them a lot in uh, medium situation because in system, it's quite obvious that you might be set in the middle a lot, but if you can start doing that in medium situation off the net, uh, then that's where you see a lot of effect as well because that's when you force them to either pay attention or they're not paying attention and you keep going with it. So uh, I'm fortunate that we have very versatile medals and they're, they've been able to hit a lot of these balls that I try to chuck with them, chuck to them off the net. That's something I've been working on my whole life kind of thing. I have to be a more crafty setter, more creative setter than my fellow taller setters. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it reminds me when I spoke to uh, our Canadian scout, Lionel, and he mentioned when they're evaluating youth setters, 
uh, on a four pass or a double plus, if you're using the data volley language, everybody's good and everybody's really good in those situations. But you can start to tell who's really thinking the game when you get into those one pass range or you're getting pulled off a net a little bit. So as a setter, how do you kind of pride yourself that you can still run tempo or try to isolate guys or put them in good positions where maybe it's not a perfect pass situation and you don't have every single option? Yeah, it's something you just got to work on a lot in practice. Uh, I will try to work on a lot uh, in practice with it. Uh, you see guys like Tanuti, Sakita, they're so good at being crafty off the net. And it's what separates them from some of the taller setters who <laughs> we have a term called outside, outside setters. Uh, so, you know, as soon as it's off the net, it's just outside, outside, outside. Uh, traditionally, that used to be Italian volleyball, right? Even a guy like Micah Christensen would come to the Italian clubs and be like outside, outside, outside. And then I'd see him on the American national team and it'd be like mid pipe, mid pipe, mid pipe. So it's cool to see um, uh, other other setters having to adjust to coaches and national teams because that is part of the something I felt when I came to Canada and came to Sean Sky at Mount Royal is that they had such a huge emphasis on middle pipe. And I liked that, fortunately enough, because I liked setting mid pipe, but there was definitely a big adjustment because they wanted to wanted me to set that more often than what I was used to. So uh, that was a cool and fun but challenging adjustment. Now, serve receive, uh, I think in the men's game, that is where where the game is if you can win the serve pass battle, and that's going to be most of your situations. But uh, again, just kind of watching MRU and Canada West this year, getting up and down in transition, like how are you demanding, but also understanding that like digs are super hard to get and the ball's going to spray, but still kind of keeping the hitter in rhythm. Obviously you're like, you're going to be accurate and there are going to be times you have to go to outside, but still trying to keep like a tempo or almost feeling like the flow of what the outside is. Like, is, is that something that just comes with experience or is there anything that you would tell younger setters to practice that, Hey, when you're in transition, like make sure you're doing these little things. Uh, there is a, a famous coach from Italy. He coaches in Perugia. He said the pretty famous quote he said in out of system when we're in transition i just chuck i want my setters to chuck up the balls because i just want our attackers to get as much time as much power as possible uh to crank the ball back to the other team i don't think it's that simple uh but i definitely think there is an aspect of giving a bit more juice on the sets i don't necessarily we we have a call for our in-system tempo sets and even though it's supposed to be pretty similar in system or on the side out and transition, it tends to become a bit slower because they have to peel off the net and our attackers are very good at doing that. But I'd say for younger setters, just be aware and try to look if your attackers are ready and that's going to determine whether or not you can uh, chuck a faster ball or if you have to slow it down a bit. And the same counts for uh, the middle and the pipe, right? That tempo tends to be pretty, pretty similar and transition inside out. But even them, they might be a bit slower off the net and might not have as much time uh, in transition. So I think even a bit of juice can be smart, but it, it's all going to depend on what kind of system you have in your team and your club. Uh, but yeah. And with you being a Canada West guy, I think obviously the the level of athlete is very high, but I also think the the level of coaching is just amazing. And for you to have to go in every weekend and beat a team and then recycle and play them again, how do you find yourself adjusting the game plans or almost predicting what they're going to change for you? Because not only do they have game tape on you to prep for the match, they also get a live version of that on Friday and you got to go try to beat them again on Saturday. So how do you kind of step up to those challenges and not be too predictable or let them kind of break down certain situations about your game? Yeah, very good question. I don't necessarily have a set in stone answer, but uh, I try to be unpredictable, try to be unpredictable on the Friday. So there's not, too much give and tell on the uh, Saturday. It, it's it's a it's not only me who decides, right? Because we have a game plan. The coaching staff is involved. Uh, one cool story I heard from uh, Ricardinho, a setter from Brazil and Trentino. There's a middle blocker from Poland who I was talking to in, in Champions League. The way it works, you play one Wednesday and then you play the next Wednesday. So back to back home and away games. And he said the first Wednesday. Rick Daniel, he would set the mid and the pipe, and the mid and the pipe, and the mid and the pipe, the whole game. So the Polish team, they went home, they prepped for this. Oh, he's only mid-pipe and transition and side out. So they were ready. They were set in stone, just locking in on the mid-pipe. And then he showed up the next Wednesday, uh, which was in the Polish gym, and he was going outside, 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 outside. So they're like, what the heck is happening? And, you know, they're good enough to do uh, in-game adjustments. But that's something I've thought about and want to bring into my game as well, right? You never know what my next move may be. And that's that's what stands out to me as a good setter, right? I see guys in the Canada West that have excelled, Brett Walsh, Max Elger, Tanner Greaves. 
Uh, you, you never know what they're going to do when they have the balls in their hands. They're very disciplined and uh, they might have a total different game plan from the Friday and the Saturday. They might not have a different game plan, but maybe they're checking, maybe they're giving extra reps to one of the guys. Uh, they're emphasizing that more in the red zone. Maybe they're doing different stuff in the red zone. So yeah, those stuff are really interesting to me, but I'd say it's a whole, it's a team effort and it's a coaching uh, staff. It depends on the game plan, how you communicate and what your plan is. Awesome, man. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for, for sharing so much. So with the squad, obviously you guys had a very good year last year. And then, uh, man, Calgary just rolled the dice there and switched the middle to left side. And, and they, they ended up taking it down in a pretty tough series. So sure enough, looking at the standings and just looking at the, the national standings, you guys are right back on top. You got a really strong squad again. Uh, I know the regular season's coming to the end, but how did the team able to kind of reset for maybe like a disappointing finish from a great regular season to do it all over again. Was there any talk of last year or did you guys press the reset button and just start focusing on this year right away? We've definitely tried to set the reset button. We've definitely talked about it. What was so devastating for us is that we did so good in the regular season, but then we found out, you know, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter squat when it comes to playoffs, right? Cause then it's a, it's a total new season. So that's a, an emphasis we've had this season that like, don't take any pride or any joy in what's happened. We've already clinched quarterfinals, so we know that that's going to be happening. And we know that after this weekend coming up, uh, it's a total, it's a total different game. It's a new dynamic, and you have to have to approach the weekends differently. You might be playing three games if it's a one-one tie after Friday and Saturday. Uh, so we definitely know what we're going into a bit more. And I say that guys are fired up to you know prove prove other teams wrong once again because we were in a similar situation we were high nationally ranked we had a high seeding after regular season which is similar to what this season has been about but we try to not take any pride in that and enjoy that before you know job's not done you know and does that add an extra layer to it just the playoff format you guys use in can west because other conferences will use one game winner takes it uh, the higher seed is the host where like you said you guys are playing two out of three series and it might take all three matches to take it down like is that something that excites you as a competitor or do you look around and be like man I just once i'd like to do it like the oua does and not have to play three times this weekend well i would say the counter west system excites me i really like it when sports sets up the best team to win and i think when you set up a best out of three series there is going to be the best team is going to win. I think after playing 26 regular games, if you only play one and lose that game, that'd be devastating for me. And I think other people would agree. Right. So I really like, even though it's maybe three games and the bigger load on your body, then, you know, it's a, it's a game of the fittest as well. Who's physically prepared uh, to take on the playoff run. And uh, that's a part of it. That's part of what we sign up for. We know that's going to be happening after the regular season. So if you blame it on injuries, like of course, acute injuries can happen. Right. But, if you're blaming it on fatigue or injuries or not being ready for the three games and that was different, then, you know, this is what you sign up for. And I think it's really cool that you, you get to just go at it uh, in the weekends. And that's something we've had an emphasis on this year, uh, trying to like win the weekends, right? It's not necessarily just one game, but you're winning, you're going in it for the whole weekend. And uh, it's challenging mentally as well, because <clears throat> even going back right after Friday night, uh, going home, eating, sleeping, because you're doing the same thing the next day, especially when that can turn into three games. Uh, it's challenging, but it's, I think it shows uh, rawness in the sport. Nice, man. Nice. And one other thing I had in my notes here that I want to talk to you about is uh, you're, you're pretty active on, on social media and you post some great stuff, whether it's highlights, but you also post about like shoe game. Uh, you were getting on my guy, Jacob Van Giel, about having beach hands. And we had like clips of you setting and him setting. Uh, you had some non-setters trying to dish a little bit like, why is it so important for you to clip this and not just, like I said, like just post your own highlights every time, which would be easy, but uh, to do some fun stuff, to interview your teammates, to do some vlogs, like it's, it's gotta be pretty time consuming. You're a full-time student. I imagine you get sore, you get tired. Like uh, how are you making time for this and having a good time with it? This started last summer. So summer of 2023. Uh, I've been a big fan of uh, <clears throat> social media channels, like out of system uh, Taylor Averill, Eric Shoji. I thought to myself, like, I have quite a bit of footage. You know, I play on the national team. I play for MRU. Like, I have a lot of game video. We do a lot of stupid, fun stuff off the court that are pretty funny to people, especially if you love the game. I always like that these out-of-system guys, Taylor Averill, are trying to go, go the game. And I thought to myself, why not do it myself as well? I sit on a lot of stuff. Maybe people will find it interesting. Maybe they won't. Uh, I What the guys are saying is they, they think it's fun as well, right? Because, you know, 
we're showing what we're all about, how much time we use on this, and the joy we have for it, right? Because not many people, especially in Norway, it's bigger in Canada. Volleyball is definitely bigger in Canada, but here as well, like, they don't necessarily know what it's all about. Uh, what are you doing off the court? What are you doing on the court? What are the uh, what are the debates going on in volleyball world right now? So those are the kind of things I think are very fun. And I, since I'm such a volleyball nerd, uh, I might as well uh, have my say in it and try to promote what I think is fun. And with you being such a fan, where would you recommend maybe some younger people to start? Because it is a hard sport to pursue that like you have to like search for it in Canada. This doesn't show up on TV. It's not going to be on Sports Center. where just listening to you talk, you know where the best setters are playing club, where they are with their national federation. Like, would you say to a younger cat, hey, just watch VNL, find a uh, your favorite player and then find them on Volleybox where they play club and like start to pursue them that way? Or is there certain leagues you would start with or start with Champions League? Like, if you were talking to a 15-year-old in Canada, how would they figure out who their favorite player was if it wasn't going to be like Stephen Marr or somebody on our national team? Yeah, that's a great question. I like that you mentioned Volleybox because that was going to be my answer. My favorite <laughs> thing in the world is Volleybox. I've been uh, sitting on Volleybox when I'm at class or on board or at home. I chuck on Volleybox and I see what are the latest transfers, where are teams at, which teams have shorter setters all this kinds of stuff. Uh, so a mix of Volleybox and YouTube. What I think is so great right now is Volleyball World, they're posting so much on their YouTube channels, their Instagram channels, and they're featuring not only, you know, Italian players in the Italian league, but like national team. I think that's a great platform to watch, especially in the summer where there's not much volleyball going on in Canada. You can see a lot of stuff going on in VNL, but then to me, when I started watching Volleyball, I asked my dad, what's the best league in the world? He said, Italy. Okay, I'm going to check out teams in Italy and you know thankfully enough volleyball world streams a lot of those games maybe you want to get a membership or you can just look it up on YouTube they post all the highlights uh so yeah when I found out you could watch all these because I, I grew up watching soccer videos on YouTube so when I found out you could watch volleyball videos as well and I can look up these players on this thing called volleyball uh yeah that was a, <laughs> that was a pretty big actually Lewis Lang you mentioned Lewis Lang he calls me Samson Box because uh, I know about the recent transfers and what's going on in the volleyball world. And I tell them, ah, it's not that hard. Just, you know, volleyball, volleyballbox.net. <laughs> Amazing, man. Yeah, thank you for sharing so much here. Uh, one tradition we built into the show is just to tell a, a funny, unique story for the closer here. So uh, you've told so many, but uh, it sounds like volleyball has given you so much and you've had a lot of unique experiences. Uh, I was hoping you could just share one funny one before we let you go. Yeah, so when I was 18 years old, uh, I played for the first division team in Norway, so with the team that's under the league series. And you play league play throughout the whole year, and then you play a last tournament. We call it a ranking tournament, where you gain ranking points uh, that <clears throat> determine uh, what place we were going to get. So we sat at fifth or fourth place before this tournament, and we did so good that we got we clinched third place. Uh, so we got third place in the league. It was a big accomplishment for us. The tournament was played in southern Norway, a small, small place called Fosun. And we all were driving minibuses or minivans uh, down there. And so on the way back, we had gotten our bronze medals. We were happy. We were pumped. This was in mid-April in Norway, and it's very beautiful outside, 20 degrees outside. So we're driving home. And after driving like 10, 15 minutes in this small village, not many people, not many houses around, we see fire on the side of the road, like on the grass. We see like patches of fire. We're like, oh, what's going on? And there weren't many houses around. So we were like holy, we, we got to stop this because there are a bunch of patches of fire. So we chuck off our T-shirts, our clothes, we stop the car, we get outside, we start put, taking branches and trying to put down the fires. We felt like strong firefighters. You know, we're warriors. We just want bronze. We're doing due diligence for the small town in southern Norway. <laughs> and then after doing that for 20 minutes and feeling like warriors, there's a guy who comes driving over on his quad and he says to us, he is, he is shutting down my fire. Like, what's up? And then apparently he had like a planned fire for his crops on his land. Like it wasn't the farming land or anything, but it was his land and he was having a planned fire. And we had called the fire truck already. So five minutes later, the fire truck comes over and they're like, what's going on here? And then he had to explain himself because he hadn't even warned uh, the fire <laughs> fire department that he was going to do this, <laughs> do this fire drill and burn down part of this field. So we felt kind of embarrassed and kind of dumb, you know, the city boys from Bergen coming down south and in the middle of nowhere and messing with this guy's 
land fire on his crops. So uh, that was pretty funny, pretty memorable. And we had an eight-hour eight hour minivan uh, trip back home that day. So we laughed at that quite a bit. Oh, man, amazing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that one. And actually, sorry, I do have one more question because I realized we, we spoke about this off-air before when we were just chatting there. But uh, CEV has expanded uh, the, the qualification, and it sounds like Norway's in the hunt. You mentioned you guys have uh, never really played like finals or, or got to the top tier. So uh, as you've just gained a lot of hopefully Canadian fans and they want to pay attention to what you're doing with your national team, uh, just take us through the CEV and what you're looking to do uh, post-Olympics with your national team. Yeah. So the way CEV volleyball works is that we have a lot of teams, national teams in Europe, and we have a lot of very good national teams in Europe. So uh, European championships are hosted every second year and the top nations like France, Italy, Poland, uh, they're directly qualified uh, through their contributions to FIVB competitions. Uh, So there are, let's say, 16, 18 spots for the other European uh, countries. So what we do every second year and what we're doing this summer with the Norwegian men's national team is we're participating in the European Championships qualifications. So we're actually finding out in about 10 days who our pool is going to be. So the w- way it works is that in August, late August, uh, we're going to be playing one home game, one away way game versus three other nations. So I was fortunate enough to participate in this qualification with the national team back in the summer of 2022 so we would play one game home versus greece and one away game versus greece and then home game versus croatia and then same thing with uh, cyprus so unfortunately we got very close we had some unfortunate injuries for some of our best guys uh we weren't able to qualify and norway is as i said a smaller volleyball nations uh, nation especially in uh europe and we have never qualified uh for the european championships before uh we have such a such a strong national team this year with Andreas Tokvam playing for Zaksa, Jonas Kralm playing in Katowice, uh, Oscar Espelon, and all these guys are playing in Plus Liga with Jakob Tella in the Italian Superliga. So we have a super strong core in our national team of uh, seven or eight uh, to ten guys playing professionally abroad. So this is the year where we're really hoping to show what we're, what we're all about, and uh, that's going to be happening late August this summer. Well, man, this this is awesome. I'm sure you've already gained some Canadian fans just by what you're doing with uh, MRU. But hopefully, we can check out uh, your international competitions this uh, this summer coming up. Uh, so that'll be in August, I believe, after the the Olympic break there in Paris. So a uh, lot of meaningful competition for you coming up. And yeah, hopefully, we get to see you uh, compete at the European Championships. That'd be very cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So yeah, man, thanks for for coming on the show. It was great to learn about your upbringing and, and just see that you're crushing it at MRU. So thanks for coming on and sharing everything that you could. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Josh. It's been a real pleasure.